Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com for the $15 starter kit and get $5 off when you use the promo code HANGUP. And by FanDuel.com, the leader in one-week fantasy football leagues. And right now, FanDuel will match the first deposit dollar up to $200 for the first 50 people who use the promo code HANG at FanDuel.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of November 10th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Scott Rabb, author of The Whore of Akron, to discuss LeBron James's return to Cleveland and evaluate the King's current state of whorishness. We'll also talk about the NFL's obsession with London, whether a pro football team will ever move there. We'll review Brothers in Exile, ESPN's 30 for 30 documentary about Cuba's baseball playing Hernandez siblings. Levon and Orlando, a.k.a. El Duque. And in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we'll assess when fans should rush the field or storm the court. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. And with us from New York is Mike Pasca, host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, with Mike Pasca. How are you, Mike? All right. Um, very perfunctory today. Um, I appreciate the somberness, given that it was a really hard weekend for Louisiana football. So it's the appropriate. You guys are setting the appropriate mood. It was the first time the Saints lost at home in how long? Well, it was the first time since 2010 in a non-bounty like bounty suspension game. Uh-huh, right. Okay, so we expunge that from the record. <laughs> and then you have the this LSU. This one's going to be expunged from the record, too. Right, and then you have the LSU game, which was so exciting, well, actually rather unexciting, until all of a sudden on the last drive, both teams could finally move the ball. 
I don't know. That was that was so hoping Alabama would lose. We, we all were. They and they both lost in overtime. You shouldn't LSU and the Saints. I hate. Oh, well, let me ask you this. This is an interesting question. Do is you it? think, given that we now have playoffs in college football, we need to do away with the wackadoo overtime rules? I don't know why, but the two seem correlated. It seemed like wackadoo overtime rules only make sense if there are no playoffs. You really got to get wins to figure out who's going to play in the who's going to be the only teams given a chance in a championship game. Well, the wackadoo the overtime playoffs, rule um, replaced complete lack of overtime. It was ties to that system. So, you know, if you had any kind of overtime system that would lead to teams not tying at the end of the game, I think that that would fit in with the playoffs. So well, I don't, I don't see a, the connection. Would an NFL-style wackadoo overtime rule be better than the college NFL version? Style, the only thing wackadoo is the over-explanation. I think the NFL rule is good. It's just that it really, more than any game I've ever seen, this was like, wow, overtime is so unlike the game I had just been seeing. Because the game I'd just been seeing is like, let's maybe go 12 yards and wear the other team down. And this was, you know, you're in field goal range already. So right, I, a, game, I thought it was a game that's different. like defense and field position that overtime rule like makes absolutely no sense to what you just saw i agree how'd louisiana lafayette do um, <laughs> they just Good go question. by louisiana the university of louisiana we're not buying it you can call them ulala you can call them ull um, but they would prefer you call them louisiana well, if they won it wouldn't have been a total disaster weekend for louisiana. nobody actually knows how they did because we just don't we just don't care it doesn't matter um okay quick whimsy watch mike I hope you. Uh, can we I? Did, we we whimsy watched without you, Mike. It wasn't the oh, same. No, no. It, was, um, it was pretty good. Well, I'll I'll throw mine, and then yeah. if it hasn't been covered, you can come in. Okay. Seattle's live mascot, uh, the Seahawk, flying into the stands and landing on a fan's head. It's good. Would have been true whimsy if the guy had a toupee on. In fact, <laughs> you got to plant the one guy with the toupee to have the eagle do it. Or if he had pooped on the guy's head, mm-hmm. that would have yeah. worked too. The Detroit. Punter completing two passes on fake punts in the first half. I don't know what they were trying to do or prove in that, but I thought it was kind of whimsical. Whimsy. Lines are seven and two. It's working. Um, more whimsy. And then I have Detroit. an anti-whimsy watch. It was kind yeah. of more of a Shiano man watch. Uh-huh. The, the uh, Steelers jumping over the Jets' victory formation. Very anti-whimsical. Yeah, that's right, right. Play to the last down. I thought the whimsy watch was going to center on the guy from Utah who scored but decided to actually technically fumble the ball at the half-yard line. And then everyone stood around. Or actually, the Oregon guy held the ball. And everyone, there was no whistle, and people kind of looked. I, I, There's no direct uh, focus on the eyes of everyone, but I could just see everyone's eyes darting around, and then boom, he goes to return the ball, and boom, there's a fumble, and boom, Utah could get it again, but boom, they don't, and Oregon gets it. Well, it was interesting was because they looked at the sideline official yep. to see if he had thrown that little block of rubber on the ground, <laughs> and when they realized that he had and wasn't signaling touchdown... It was yeah. like it was very Keystone Copsy. It sort of suddenly yeah. it sp- like- suddenly sprung into action, and everyone was moving at sort of Babe Ruth in newsreel speed. <laughs> yeah, but- it was like like uh, the guy Guy Ritchie movie would be. You'd see the block of wood, and they'd all look at each other, and they'll go <laughs> no, and then boom, in fast motion, everyone would go and run down right. the field. Well, two things. First, it's NFL whimsy watch. I think the premise oh, was sorry. that the NFL yeah. has no whimsy. So right. shame on you, Mike. But also, I was thinking about doing this for an afterball, but then I realized it would be kind of impossible to figure out, but I can throw the question out. Has there ever been a touchdown that took longer? It was 33 seconds from the start of the play to when uh, the touchdown was signaled. There has to be some sort of lateral kickoff touchdown. That took longer than 33 seconds? I mean, it doesn't sound that long when you just say 33 seconds, but if we just sit there and go like, 
one Mississippi, yeah. two. I'm sorry, one Louisiana, three two Louisiana, <laughs> four Louisiana Lafayette. Um, so if anybody has a nominee out there for a touchdown that took longer than 33 seconds, send it would it have in. to be it would have to be a Roethlisberger type escape situation, bomb down the field, deep in the end zone, and then wending return. But I don't see how you get to 33. I don't see how you get there either. Yeah. Um, okay, before we start, just wanted to note that next week's podcast will not be a regular hang-up episode. It's going to be a super fest. We're combining forces with the political gab fest and the culture gab fest. We're going to sports it up a bit, but it's going to be a, like a combined mega show. So that'll be in your hang-up feed next week. Don't be alarmed. It'll be great. Don't be alarmed, Stefan. It's going to be like the triple cast. <laughs> It'll be the Olympic the triple cast. All right, time for our first topic. On Friday night in Denver, LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers ended a four-game road trip with a 110-101 win over the Nuggets. A game after the Cavs tied a franchise record low with six assists and a loss to Utah. Cleveland had 25 assists and seven scores and double figures as they took their record to two and three. The team's slow start, though, led to a report that LeBron and Kyrie Irving, quote, exchanged words after a 19-point loss to Portland. He never won to exchange words. What if the words were, hey, nice try, Kyrie? <laughs> I don't Isn't think that's what they talking were. Talking exchange words? Yeah. Um, and in that game, ESPN's Brian Windhorst said LeBron played with preseason-esque intensity, perhaps employing the strategy whereby a dad who catches a kid smoking a cigarette forces him to smoke the whole carton while he stands on the baseline refusing to shoot the ball, if that metaphor makes sense. For his part, uh, James <laughs> says everyone needs to relax. The team will be okay. Everyone should watch his new TV show, Survivor's Remorse on Stars, buy the new colorways of the LeBron 12 shoe from Nike. Just relax. Joining us today to talk about LeBron's return to the Midwest, perhaps to talk about the new colorways of the LeBron 12 shoe, it's a man known for being extraordinarily relaxed about all things to do with Cleveland sports. It's the author of The Whore of Akron. He's a writer for Esquire, Mr. Scott Rabb. How are you, Scott? I'm great. How are you guys? We're good. We're very excited to have you back. We got to deal with the whore in the room first. A lot of people have wanted us to have you back on the podcast. We had you on a couple times. You wrote this book. You're not very, you called LeBron a few names, if I recall. And you played the part of Dwayne Wade <laughs> at the live show last year. Dwayne Wade as Banquo's ghost or whatever yeah. that, that play was. Yeah. I got my SAG card based on that. Thank you, guys. <laughs> but people want to know. People out there want to know what are your feelings about LeBron? James now do you re are there regrets I've had a few but then again too few to mention <laughs> uh the title was was my bad you know in terms of, of both commercial uh, uh you know the agent hated it uh, my boss at Esquire David Granger rightly pointed out might be might be a little harsh <laughs> uh, I'm good with it but I have to say, you know, I wasn't expecting LeBron James to come back to the Cavaliers. <laughs> Who would have anticipated that? No, well, nobody anticipated him leaving. I said, you know, I started the Horror of Akron the year before. He, you know, I, I had hoped to write a happy book. I'm working on another book now, hopefully uh, with a happier ending. But, you know, the regret is, you know, it's partly based on, I always want it both ways. You know, I, I want to be the most passionate diehard Cleveland fan in the world, by the way. You better credential me because I'm a professional journalist. Well, that worked for two years with the Cavs, but I couldn't even get in on media day this year. So you were wrong multiple times. You were wrong because you thought he would never leave. Right. And then you were wrong because you thought he wouldn't go back. And they kind of cancel each other out. 
Well, and then, and then I'm the guy living, you know, with, with the title that, that I'm still kind of proud of, although I understand not everyone cares that there's a revelation, you know, a biblical reference and a Woody Allen homage in the title to Horror of Akron. You know, not, no writer can, can explain. You know, people take things a certain way. They're right, not the writer. You know, you can't explain stuff. Good title. That's it, all I have right. to say. I it, love the title. I, I love the title, too. I'll, I'll, I'll always love the title. It just feels odd uh, to be a pariah. You know, the Messiah has returned. And I'm as excited and happy, by the way, as a fan as I could possibly be about that. On another level, there's a, there's a certain, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say bitter uh, irony. If, if, uh, if I, <laughs> I'm the guy who winds up uh, uh, on the outside, which yeah, I'm used to being in some ways, but, you know, I, I had to buy the scalp tickets, uh, you know, uh, uh, from the season ticket holder just to go to the home opener, you know, just to see him lose to the Knicks. And that, it, it's not like I'm looking for freebies, but there's something about, you know, when you want to be the media guy and the guy who has the access, uh, suddenly, uh, like I was uh, with the Miami Heat back in, in the 2010-2011 season. You know, it's weird because it's my hometown, and I know, you know, I know the players. It, it's it's very strange. Yeah, so in a way, he's the Messiah, but then he was the whore, so you got a Mary Magdalene situation going on, but there you are to solve his wounds. You will be bandaging him, and you will be saying, let those of you without sin cast the first stone as the team starts off two and three, and as he doesn't seem to be as good as he used to be. Now, given your track record of giving ev- getting everything wrong about LeBron's career, is he going to rebound and have an MVP-esque season? Yeah, I think so, but I'm not. I'm not so sure. I agree with with the build up to the question. I think I got everything right. I, I think you need to go back, read the Horror of Akron, and really ponder it for a while. I think I think the guy's done an amazing job uh, of of healing himself. You know, whatever you want, whatever metaphor you want to use for that, going through the pressure cooker. You know that the, that the Bulls and Jordan had to go through with the bad boys and all that. You know, I, I guess I can be cynical about the return in terms of, of the crafting of the, the PR campaign. The execution, as brilliant as it was, you know, part of me will always be a little skeptical or cynical, but the letter and SI and, and, and all that stuff, uh, uh, I love the narrative. And, and as a fan, yeah, I guess, I guess I'll be wrong again and say it's really not time for panic and despair after five games of an 82-game season that's just to build up to the playoffs, I think. He'll be fine. I think the team's gonna gonna come together. I, I think, you know, I'll be going to a, a championship parade next June. That's how that's how wrong I'm willing to be. I think you have to read your book, Scott, to understand that this was not just a venomous spew against an athlete. I mean, it was far deeper. It was far more personal. It was about much more than LeBron James. LeBron James was your vessel for self-hatred and self-actualization. And your fanhood is what we're talking about here, that these guys are abstract figures. And LeBron James was the most abstract character that you could conjure for a fan from Cleveland. Um, Having said all of that, it's also clear that LeBron himself admitted that, has admitted, and you just alluded to it, that he transformed. And he transformed because he understood that he had behaved like an asshole, that in leaving Cleveland the way he did via the decision and in setting himself up as some sort of basketball god, he had brought a lot of this on himself. And I think his actions since then have recognized that. Then we get the rollout of the new LeBron moving back to Cleveland, and the, I think, epitome of that is this Nike commercial that has been released, that was released a week or two ago. He's a self-aggrandizing asshole in that commercial, (laughs) Scott. Let's play a clip from that, and then let's talk about it. 
every single night, every single practice, every single game, we got to give it all we got. Because they're going to ride with us. Everything that we do on this floor will be because of this city. We owe them. If we're going to grind for this city, they're going to support us, man, but we got to give it all back to them. We get it done. The toughness that we have on the court is going to come from this city. Everybody, the whole city of Cleveland, that's what it's all about. It's time to bring them something special. Let's go. Bring it on in, everybody. Let's go. Let's go. Hard work on three. Together on six. One, two, three. Four, five, six. Hard work on One, two, three. Hard work. Four, five, six. My son had to, have to, had to reach over and, and grab my bicep to comfort me, my considerable bicep to comfort me. While they played that ad on what they're calling the Humongatron at Quicken Loans Arena, I was sobbing, not, not like an elderly woman, but like an elderly Jewish man, quietly. And what, what you were saying before, absolutely on the money. And I, I would have to add that the themes that he has struck and that Wyden and Kennedy, Nike's ad agency, have run with, the themes of the power of home, you know, the pull of home, all that stuff, I think, resonates. I mean, I think there's something wicked, almost evil about the ad. And I think if enough people see it enough times, everyone will hate Cleveland with even more, maybe quieter, but, but, but a deeper passion. Than it only hate. took me a couple of watchings to right. hate Cleveland even but you, more. But you're, you know, you're an early adapter. You're a public intellectual. You know, you're an author. You know, I'm simply saying at the gut level, a lot of the things that... Uh, you, me, that all of us tend to look, you know, askance at, you know, that we almost ridicule. And, and again, I, I, that's what pulled, pulled the book out of me, was trying to ponder, what is Cleveland's hold on me? Why do I care so much? I'm rooting for laundry. This guy, on the other hand, you know, grew up in northeastern Ohio, a guy who said he understood the hunger and that he wasn't going to go chasing championships. I know none of that is contractual. I overcame uh, my, my loathing uh, for, for LeBron when he wore a Yankees cap to the first game of a playoff series in 2007 at Jacobs Field in Cleveland. Had Larry Bird done that in Boston at Fenway early in his career as a Celtic, it would have profoundly affected basketball history in Boston. You know, we forgave him that, or I forgave him that, but the, the coming home and, and, and those themes, as, as much as I want to scoff at it, and the Nike commercial, too, they reach something at the level, uh, silly as it sounds, at a, at a mythic. Maybe, maybe it has to be silly because I am writing another book about it, but there's something biblical about it to me. You know, despite and despite and despite, including despite the, the Orwellian. I, I don't know how else to describe that ad. It's enormously effective ad, or, or you and I wouldn't respond so powerfully, whatever the direction of our response. Well, I think it kind of puts the SI story in a slightly different light, too, because we had the discussion after that piece came out about how much of it was genuine feeling and emotion and accurate description of his own, at least, perception or belief of his of his personal narrative, his journey, and how much of it was savvy marketing campaign. And now, I think with this Nike ad, it's hard to argue that any it's hard to argue that anything produced by Nike is anything but marketing campaign. So I think, it kind of does it does it cast a shadow over over the SI piece? Does it make it seem like it's all just part of a plan? A shoe and, campaign? Yeah, it's all part of a shoe campaign. I, man. I, I got I gotta go multiple choice because there's no way to dispute that. There isn't. It on the face of it, it it would be absurd 
does it, but is it something more is entirely subjective. And, and again, I don't want to over-intellectualize it because what I'm talking about is, is me. You know, I, I really did see the Browns win a championship in 64, and it, and it says far more about me than about sports in general that I care this much. I left Cleveland in 1984, and while I, I plan to move back eventually, that, that's easy to say. The truth of the matter is I'm an expat, and, and what I'm thrilled about, and, and this is really side-by-side with the, the undisputable, indisputable truth, uh, you know, that it is all a marketing campaign. It is all pushing a brand. You know, you put the Cleveland label on it, uh, it's not enough. But when I, as a fan, I genuinely have starved for a championship. Maybe I should be writing Hallmark cards, but I want to go with my 15-year-old kid. I want to see a Cleveland team win a championship again. I, I, as far as I know, I'm in good health, but I'm 62 years old, and those teams suck. I mean, that, that rebuilding job the Cavaliers did might be as bad as any in the history of pro sports, at least during my time as a fan. And this is how it wound up with LeBron, with Kyrie Irving, with Kevin Love, with, with assorted other, other young pieces, a brand-new coach who's an interesting guy in his own right and on his own learning curve. As a fan, I'm so freaking happy. It exists side by side. I think it, I, can't, I can't deny uh, how absurd the ad is. And seeing it on a screen the size of the one they've hung in the queue is its own uh, you know, surreality, but I was actually sobbing, and I, you know, I know that'll wear off, but it reached me at that level. You know, if you watch it really closely, you see Derek Jeter get out of a limousine in one corner and put his fist there in you, the You uh, know, in the you, you big city guys. No, you're right. Jeter wound up on the uh, cover of the ESPN Cleveland issue. Well, it's it's me, all brands. That's all I'm saying. You know that. You know that better than I do. Well, to me, marketing campaign, when Shaq does an ad for Pepsi and his head goes through the ceiling because he's tall, that's marketing campaign. This is propaganda. And it has some of the and it has some of the characteristics of propaganda in that it convinces people that there is a reality that they maybe intellectually would be able to say, yeah, that's not really true, but it feels true. By using the fictional, it's trying to replace the authentic. Just like Derek Jeter walking near Yankee Stadium and meeting with regular people, which he, of course, never did except in the context of this ad message Derek Jeter meets with regular people. So it must have been a weird, an er-weird thing to be in the Cleveland arena where no one could ever come close to actually touching a Cavalier without getting tasered severely and watching this ad where all these Cleveland fans, these regular people, you know, lumpy members of the proletariat, uh, touching each other and one of them maybe getting to touch LeBron. I know it's symbolic, but to me... It is, I don't blame LeBron. He kind of does the best he can. He, he's a guy with a high school education who was put in this place and told by people, this is how you do it to be a superstar. But it's, the affect is so ridiculous. I find it repulsive, but I'm able to separate it. All I care is that LeBron is a good basketball player. But that ad, that nonsense is offensive to me. Just like the Jeter ad, just like all these examples of faux authenticity, because these, these guys have become such global brands that they've ceased to become people. Uh, well, all right. Well, Scott, you know, we we started the segment. <laughs> we, we, we've all shared our thoughts in the ad. Bad ad. It's a bad ad. Well, I, th- I think I, Orwellian and Wicked Almost Evil, I think, covers it for me. I'm not disagreeing with one word or thought there. Yeah, I still I still love LeBron. The, to, it's a campaign. Want to see him win. I don't hate Cleveland yet. But, you know, we started the, the segment, or I started the segment by talking about, like, the more prosaic 
facts on the court, which I think are less interesting. So I'm glad that we didn't dwell on those. But in a way, him going back to Cleveland is a victory, right? And so how important is the actual championship? You know, you said that you're hoping to be at a victory parade. You've got the whole like 1964 since the last championship thing. Does it still have the same power and hold, even though like LeBron choosing the city, you know, and having the big banner back up, doing the chalk toss again, having the season opener felt kind of like a big win in itself. I think I think it's a big win in itself. I, I've said, and, and I believe I, I believe myself, if he manages to be part of a Cavaliers team that wins a championship, clearly that's uh, you know transcendental hope. I think he's good. I think he's made good. I, in my mind, at least, I mean, I, I don't have much of an issue, and I only speak for me. There's certainly not a but if there's a spokesman for the Cleveland fan base, it, it, it ain't me. Part of what prompted the the turn that the, what turned the book into into something called the Horror of Akron, you know, it was always unfair during his seven years with the Cavs to blame him for the fact that they never won an NBA championship. He wasn't the GM, and and the expectations of a starved fan base to be placed on any athlete, however great, it, it is absurd. I, mean, I wrote about it in the book. Nonetheless, you know, that's what it felt like. Was our, our Moses left? He left. They, he didn't didn't win a ring. He not only left, but but had to do it in an hour long you know debacle that really yeah I I don't think I need to convince anyone that nothing great has happened to Cleveland in or out of sports for a long time, and this was something great. This was something that really did lift the city spirits, if I can speak you know based on someone who's spending ha- half of every month back there more or less. You know, it, and it made a difference, and and I think that absolves LeBron. All LeBron can do is play as well as he can. He's not coaching, not the GM, although there's reason to suggest he's strongly influential in both those areas. And, and I think, yeah, I want a championship. Every Cleveland fan you know, craves that. Two generations haven't known it in any, any of those major sports. But as far as I'm concerned, he's made good on, on all that disrespect, all the outrage he provoked, all that stuff. And as he did last week when he stood around and watched Kyrie Irving and Deion Waiters throw up bricks – He's reinforcing his importance to not only this team, but to the city. It was sort of like, you know, it's a wonderful life starring LeBron. Hey, Cleveland, here's basketball without me again. And hey, Dion and Kyrie, this is what we're going to be if you don't learn to play the way I want you to play. And that's actually fine. I'm fine with that. Teach these guys how to play ball. Maybe that'll help you actually win. Well, I think he also wants to leave room, not that David Blatt, the new head coach, exercised any authority in that situation, but at least, at least in my mind, if we're going to force a narrative onto it, which I do all the time, we do all the time, you know, I'm also thinking there is a head coach on the sideline who's watching this unfold, who's watching his team literally score 100 points while dishing out all of six assists. I mean, it's unbelievable that you know, the two statistics simply don't go together. So you know, LeBron has as much control as he chooses to exert, and in that case it was passively, but Everyone's reading it differently, and that on the, on the on the comments, you know, the message boards on, on the Cavalier-centric blog in Cleveland, there are several of them. People are furious with LeBron or explaining it, and it really is. It's it's going to be an extraordinary shakedown cruise. It's going to be unlike the Heat's. Certainly, there's no D way. We're talking about Waiters and Irving who played for Byron Scott and then Mike Brown Redux. They've played horrible basketball. They've been indulged in every bad habit on and off the court. It doesn't mean that LeBron's the drill sergeant. It simply means that, that it's a ground-up process. There's no Dwayne Wade with a ring. There's certainly no Pat Riley in that organization. And it's going to be weird watching it play out on the court. It has been bizarre. 
know, what you're describing is, is what I'm seeing, too. It's nuts out there. All right, well, Scott, we'll be checking in with you. Please. Um, and as we know, every story in the Bible always has a happy ending. So um, we'll be looking forward to... Uh, Except for the ones with human sacrifice. East 9th Street, third week of June. See you guys there live at the parade. All right. When, and when's the new book coming out? Uh, you know, shortly after. <laughs> <laughs> Next day. As soon All right. as I come up with an ending and a title. All right, Scott. We'll, Thanks, be, ch- we'll be checking in. Thank you. Now it's time for a word from our sponsor, FanDuel.com. There are millions of people out there playing fantasy football. If you don't believe me, just ask the man or woman in your office who's sulking around this week. And I can guarantee you this person drafted Carson Palmer, Geno Smith, Josh McCown, Ryan Fitzpatrick, and Matt Castle this season. Or Jay Cutler. Fucking Jay Cutler. <laughs> what if they have the last and fourth to last and third to last and second to last picks? Look, I'm not excusing this person's draft. That's, That's a bad did. fancy draft. Maybe take they a couple. They traded of... down. They traded down. <laughs> take a couple of running backs, fellow. They're playing for 2015. They are. Um, but never fear. Carson Palmer, great, great, great 2015 acquisition. <laughs> never fear, poor fantasy drafter, because FanDuel lets you win real money by picking a new roster of players every week. You can pick a fresh team and give it another shot. An entry fee started just $1. There's no season-long commitment or upfront fees. FanDuel pays out more than $10 million every single week this NFL season. You can go to FanDuel.com and click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner. Use our code HANG and sign up now. FanDuel's new user special, it is ending soon. So get there today and they'll match your first deposit dollar up to 200 bucks. That means you can get up to $200 for free. The offer is only good for the first 50 people that use our code HANG. FanDuel.com, where every week is a new season. That's F-A-N-D-U-E-L dot com. The NFL's international series is over for 2014 with the Cowboys pounding the Jaguars 31-17 in the last game of the year at London's Wembley Stadium. Here are a couple excerpts from the Guardian's live blog of the game. Dallas are in the business of running out the clock here, but first they spend a timeout after a couple of short runs from Randall. This game is one slow train. And... It's third and 13 now from their own 42. Bortles running right has nothing going on. He chucks it up just for a laugh, and Allen <laughs> Robinson has no chance. You're not still reading, are you? British football fever. Catch it. Uh, the British arse kicking. It's total arse kicking. The British press seems to have noticed that the 1-9 Jaguars are a, a bit of a joke. They're taking the piss a little bit with the Jaguars. It makes the team's four-year residency in Wembley Stadium as the quote-unquote home team in one game each year seem a little less exciting than if, say, the Seahawks or Patriots were London's de facto team. (laughs) But the NFL still seems to be taking this London thing seriously. Uh, There are three games scheduled in the UK in 2015. The league is now telling teams they need to give up a home game to play in London if they want to be considered as a potential Super Bowl host. The little extortion action. The head of the NFL's international business says it is feasible to have a team in London, and he envisions it happening by 2022. England's Football Association, that is the non-Jaguar soccer kind of football, has floated an even earlier date, uh, 2018, for an NFL team's arrival. Uh, Mike, what's what's the uh, Britishism for pipe dream? I had investigated as to why the Jaguars' defensive line were in three-point stances and found out they had been nailed there. See, that's a, that's a dead parrot reference. You think it's a pipe dream? I think it's exciting. 
I know everyone's against it. That's why I'm for it. And the extortion, <laughs> it does seem unfair, but you know who the league is being unfair to? Billionaire owners. So yeah, that's unfair. Well, also the fans of teams. But you know what? People go to stadiums. They get in fist fights. Things seem much better across the pond. And you can watch it on telly. <laughs> that's it. I, I, what's wrong with London expansion? It's a, you know, football takes a week between games. I think that coaches are nuts. They never like the Thursday game. You're wrong. You should like the Thursday game. You're playing a team. You're playing an opponent who's in the same situation as you. And then the next week you have an advantage. And don't these teams always get a... What's the deal? Do they always get a buy after the London game? They do. All right. Who doesn't want to buy after the London game? <laughs> yeah, and if you have like a whole season full of London games, that's totally sustainable. Buys, team, buys for everyone. Buys for everyone. Any team that is based in London, I think, is going to have a big advantage. In fact, it'll probably be too big an advantage. They'll have to. Uh, they'll have to tweak that. Well, I, the other I, team can just start with like a seven nothing lead. I mean, the the possible tweaks are are, uh, or, are endless. Or, or practice in the Canary Islands. Anything is possible. Anything is doable. Here. I mean, the travel, like if you have to go from the West Coast to London, that's going to be kind of a pain. A little far. A little, little far. They could play that game in Newfoundland when they deplane. But the, the NFL... They play the game with Newfoundland. My, my, <laughs> Mike alluded to the Thursday night games. The NFL clearly does not care about competitive fairness in situations like this when it comes up against an obvious marketing and financial victory for them. That's why they're pushing so hard for the 18-game season if... They think that they can make a lot of money by putting a team in London. They're going to put a team in London if they can get it collectively bargained. What do they need to have to put a team in London? They need to sell out the tickets in Wembley Stadium, 80,000 seats every week, eight times a year. They do that three times a year, eight times a year. They need to make sure that people are going to watch the games on television. They'll be on very early on the West Coast. 6.30, possibly, 9.30, unless they play a night game in, in Wembley. Well, they experimented with that this year, did. having the 9.30 they Eastern did. start, and it actually seemed like people did watch, and it's, and it's you know, a, certainly a gain over having nobody watch at 9.30 a.m. That's just a new audience of people. So forgetting the logistics, forgetting the logistics, the financials are, will people still watch? Will people still go to the game? And they probably will. Does that mean you'll develop a fan base in London? Uh, maybe. I mean, NFL Europe didn't really develop fan bases that were potent enough to sustain a franchise week in and week out um, in, other, in London and in other cities in Europe. But those aren't the principal concerns. It's really, it's really the money. Can we make it work? I mean, there will be a lot for the players union to bargain. I mean, this is going to be – this will create a sort of a different set of – playing rules is effectively for free agents, for anybody that signs with this team. I mean, this is, you know, you could argue, would you rather live in London or Jacksonville? You and I might say I'd rather live in London, but I think there are probably a lot of football players that would prefer to be in America for whatever reasons. Does that mean that they're not going to be able to get 53 players to sign contracts to play in London? Hell no. Players will play anywhere. They want to play in the NFL. I think the logistics are not that hard to overcome, but you know, there's also the question of, is it an existing team that would move there or would you add a franchise, add an expansion team in London and probably some, somewhere else? Or maybe you don't need somewhere else and you just figure out the math on the schedules. Maybe that makes the buys easier. I don't know. Well, well, do you know there are almost 200,000 Americans living in England? And do you know the population of Jacksonville is only 800,000? Do the math. <laughs> I've done the math. It's not, uh, the real opportunity <laughs> here, gentlemen, is in naming the London team and other teams in Europe. I thought the NFL really missed the real. The reason the NFL Europe failed, 
they didn't have the right nicknames for the teams. The Scottish Claymores? That's a great name. That should be like the Towers of London. You know, the, 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 the Towers of London? That's terrible. The London Bridges. The <laughs> That's la- what we think of as London. The Ladies of Spain. Of London. The Berlin Walls. The I say you go back to like endless. the Packers and the Steelers. What about the London yeah. Pound? The Roman Emperor. That's the good. Pound. The that is good. The Pound, pound is pound. good. Bring back the Pound. The oh pound. my God, that's good. Um, yeah. The Farthing. <laughs> <laughs> the Tuppence. <laughs> um, hey, pennies. <laughs> so I think the issue for a London team, um, and you kind of got at this a little bit, Stefan, is that people there don't care. And so that's the fundamental question. Can you force people to care. These games have gotten very little press coverage in London. And people have gone and, you know, when you ask NFL players, when you ask NFL executives, I think they'll acknowledge that it's because of the novelty factor. It's like, you know, if the circus comes to town. It's a novelty factor and the expats who like the Cowboys or who like the, who are from Tampa. Right. So, so when and if the Jaguars move to London, that's not going to be easy to convert everyone there to, you know, rooting for Blake Bortles or whoever. People either already have teams or they don't care. So I think of it as like the winter classic for the NHL. People love those outdoor games. They go nuts for the outdoor games. It's a novelty. You get to see like a hockey game in Fenway Park. It's a really special occasion. It looks really cool on TV and people on, you know, it's a, it's a special broadcast and, People who don't normally watch hockey will tune in. But if you had every game outside, people would be like, it is fucking cold out here. I don't want to go to this game. I don't even really like hockey. So that is what I think might happen if there's a team in London. It's like eight games of the Jaguars. It's like game one. Hey, this is pretty cool. Game two. This team kind of blows. Game seven. Nobody's there. I just don't know if you can create fandom in this kind of inorganic way. But I think the NFL is definitely going to give it a shot because that's the way they can expand their business. Right. And that's ultimately it's the we're running out of ways to expand our business domestically. And international has always had this appeal. But this has taken a long time already. I mean, this is we're going on 20 years of hockey, basketball, football, baseball, playing games outside of U.S. Canada. And we're still nowhere closer to this dream of a European division in the NBA or the NHL, which would logically make a lot more sense than a team in London or two or three teams in Europe for the for football. I don't think, well, it would logically make more sense because the sports are popular there. But the right. week off, and even building in two weeks off, makes it tantalizing. Sure. And I'd love, I'd love the NFL to try and fail. That would be awesome. Also, it doesn't true. seem. It's fun yeah. to see the NFL. Also, yeah. it doesn't seem <laughs> as if the uh, game really is marketed to, in a way that would appeal to Londoners. I mean, I don't know that uh, the Hank Williams. It's mostly marketed right to Southern males, to African Americans. I guess it's a little bit marketed now to women, but I don't think uh, English women like all that pink. That's that's not what I've seen. So what I'm saying is, if you get some Men in Blazers types to uh, explain the game to the English more, if you get a little. English marketing that isn't based on Gruden saying, look at that scat back with a 90-tooth catfish. I think that might be. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's, uh, that's exactly what he says. Yeah. So I, one other reason. This the is banana. Kind of he was always talking about that, that banana play. Spider, why banana? 92, yeah, why spider, banana? banana. Yeah, yeah. So another reason banana. why Banana. This... Spider banana. <laughs> Jaguars. Jaguar uh, banana. So the English FA um, is actually really keen on this happening because- Good, Josh. 
the English national team, their contract to play in Wembley Stadium ends in 2017. So that's why you hear him saying, yeah, 2018. It's totally going to happen in 2018 when we don't have a tenant anymore. So I think partly they could be just trying to exert pressure on some English club to you know play at soccer home games there, or they could just be looking for a tenant that has a lot of money. The, the games have actually made money when you know they've been based there. So more games equals more money for the F.A., and I think that the FA and the NFL sincerely believe that a real team there will be will create a different level of fan interest. That it won't just be the novelty. That it'll be it'll create real supporters. The London Pound, pound the pound. All right, it is now time for a word from our sponsor, Harry's, which is the official razor partner of Movember. You might be wondering why a shaving company would sponsor a month that encourages you to grow your mustache into a bushy state. Well, first of all, Movember is a movement to raise money for men's health issues. That's a great reason. We can all get behind that. Second, you can use Harry's high-quality razors and shaving cream to sculpt your stash into remarkable shapes. I recommend the trapezoidal mustache, personally. Third, you might want to shave... Which which is the small end of the trapezoid, up or down? Uh, I think down would make it look weirder. Mm -hmm. So that's (laughs) that's why I I root for that. Third, you might want to shave that soup strainer once the month is up, there is no better tool to do it than Harry's Blades. After all, Harry's bought a factory in Germany that's been crafting blades for almost a century. They are not messing around people. The factory is in Germany. Personally, I'm clean shaven at the moment. I use my Harry's razor and gel to achieve the look. If you want a face like Josh Levine, at least from a hairlessness perspective, <laughs> then you can get a Harry's starter kit for just $15 which includes a razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's Shave Cream or their new foaming shave gel. And shipping is free. Go to harrys.com, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in our code HANGUP with your first purchase. That is harrys.com, and enter the coupon code HANGUP at checkout for $5 off and change the way you shave forever. ESPN's 30 for 30 series has rolled out five new documentaries in the last five weeks with two more to come before the year is out. Last week, the network ran Brothers in Exile, a 90-minute doc directed by Mario Diaz and produced by MLB Productions. The subject of the film is the Hernandez brothers, Levon and El Duque, both of whom fled Cuba and became major league stars, albeit under very different circumstances. After Levon defected from a hotel when the Cuban national team was playing an international tournament, El Duque, Orlando Hernandez, was banned from playing baseball on the island, allowed only to play in makeshift pickup games, uh, footage of which we see in the documentary. That ban and other deprivations led him to flee the island on a boat with seven other people, an escape that was harrowing but ultimately successful. What did you think of the Brothers in Exile movie, Stefan Fatsis? I liked this film. Uh, I especially liked the footage from Cuba contemporaneous to El Duque's defection and earlier uh, of Levon. Levon is like eight years younger than Orlando. Uh, He was an up-and-coming star. He was young still. When he defected, uh, El Duque was already an established superstar in Cuban baseball for Industriales, one of their top teams. And by the time he defected, he was actually had been suspended from Cuban baseball because of his connection to Levon. Uh, Levon's defection was effectively punishment for him. But there's some terrific, terrific footage. 
great interviews with both players, and it's an engrossing narrative, uh, both their life pre-defection on the island for El Duque, the straits that he faced while he was there and effectively exiled internally in Cuba, and then his own harrowing defection. I mean, at one point he says that if I had to do it again, I wouldn't. I mean, they were stranded on an island for several days in the Bahamas before they were rescued by a Coast Guard cutter. It's really gripping stuff. It's a great story. There were times I felt a little guilty that I needed the sports as a way in. I mean, there are many people who have defected from Cuba. I'm sure they've gone through uh, things just like this, and they didn't have million-dollar careers waiting for them on the other side. But the baseball aspect, I thought, was really good, too. And these are compelling guys, especially El Duque, you know? Every once in a while, an athlete, just the way he performs, the the, the motion, you know, the pitching motion and hiding the ball and all stuff, it's just, just compelling. You want to know about the guy. And it seems, I mean, when he was playing, it seemed like... Like the stuff that was parceled out was just designed to amuse. Everything about him seemed like lively and amusing. And then when you fill in with the backstory you had heard about but never really seen, it fleshes out a very uh, complete and compelling picture of a guy for sure. So Steve Fanner... I thought more than Levant. Yeah, I think that's right. Steve Fanner mentions, I think, um, when they're showing the 98 World Series, El Duque pitches them to victory in one of the games against the Padres and then his family like during the series his kids and his mom and his ex-wife are on a plane back to the U.S. like after a kind of diplomatic mission via the Catholic Church and he talks about how like this is really storybook stuff that this never happens like this might be the most storybook story in sports history a guy wins the world series after coming from cuba and like as the series is being won his family is on the plane back to the u.s like in the narrative hollywood film you would think that they would have condensed it or changed the story to make it fit so perfectly but this actually happened and wind up staying in the united states right they they got them out of cuba but i think this will make a more interesting discussion because i did not like this documentary i thought it was a great story i thought the footage was great, like you said. But I think there's a difference between a good story with good footage and a good documentary. And I think the fact that it was authorized by MLB Productions was a big problem. I didn't know that. Um, and Well, it doesn't surprise me. Well, this is the compromise. Hagi- you have to, it's hagiographic, yeah. This is the compromise you have to make as a filmmaker. Can you use the footage of Major League Baseball games or maybe even get the interviews with the guys if it's not authorized by Major League Baseball? Probably not. So I can understand why... Uh, the filmmaker Mario Diaz would make that choice. But this is a small example, but I think it exemplifies the problem with the movie. They show the footage of the game, the 97 championship series game where Luvon famously has 15 strikeouts and, they and don't beats mention. the Braves. They don't mention the unbelievably, hilariously, famously awful strike zone by Eric Gregg in that game. They allude game. to it, though, where, because they say Charles Johnson went out to the mound. They some of the strikes. <laughs> right, that too. Well, they allude to it when, when, Char- when they say when Charles Johnson, the catcher for the Marlins, goes out to the mound and Levon says he tells me, strike zone's looking pretty wide tonight, go for it. Right, but they mention it only in passing and the, all, the preponderance of the quotes are about how amazing his stuff was that night. And Levon had 15 strikers in that game. In his long major league career, he never had more than 11 in any other game. I mean, it was a joke, the strike zone in that game. And you see some of the pitches, and it's really not commented on, except kind of obliquely in that one way. There's also the big missing piece in this movie, and this didn't have to do with the MLB Productions authorization, but it's still a gaping hole, is that Joe Kubas, the agent, didn't agree to talk to them. And he, I would 
love a documentary just about that guy. He is as fascinating, if not more, than El Duque or Levon. He's the guy who figured out how to get these players out. He figured out how to get them to establish residency in a third country to get them the big free agent deals. But what the movie doesn't mention is that this guy is extremely controversial, that this guy was reported, reputed to misstate players' ages, and none of this is really discussed in the movie. And it made it seem like, you know, the hagiography about the players themselves, they're both great pitchers. They seem like good guys. You can understand that. But it felt like the edges were not as sharp as they could have been or should have been, and it made you wonder what else was being left out. I will say something about sharp edges, my friend. There's an excellent article in uh, Fangraphs by Jeff Sullivan about how Levon Hernandez made his own strike zone. And he had the <laughs> wide, every year he had a wider and wider strike zone. And every season he was in the top 5% of wide strike zones. There's something about he knew how to work umps and he knew how to establish that outside strike. So it wasn't all Greg. We should give some credence to the wily, perhaps forged in Cuba skill of widening one's own strike zone. And Levon Hernandez did that. Josh, I think that you're right, first of all, because this is an incredibly complex story. And all of the stories of these defections are very complex. There is legal muddiness. There are There was all kinds of skullduggery, bribes, bad guys that existed on the periphery of the Cuban national team. And these players, once they were successfully transported to Mexico or the Dominican Republic or elsewhere in order to gain residency status there, which allowed them to become free agents and allow them to sign with any team for millions of dollars, as opposed to being forced to go into the MLB draft. Filmmakers do face these problems, and we've talked about this with our friend John Hawk. And the problem that they face is, do you want to do a film that is an investigative story, or are you doing a film that is effectively a narrative about these guys' lives? And I think the choice here was to focus on the drama and the narrative of these guys' lives. And yeah, that's going to leave stuff out because life is far murkier. These stories are far murkier than the narrative that we want to see. But then that doesn't make the narrative disingenuous in any way. And I thought that that's what I took away from it. I didn't feel like I learned a ton from this movie, but I felt that I did feel the emotional tugs that affected both of these men and the hardships that they faced both in Cuba and in their transition to the United States. And just as a writer who hasn't made any deals with anyone could choose the tone of a story, uplift, uh, serious look. And that tone is not something you decide on beforehand. You know, the facts can influence the tone. You say, look, I have determined that these guys are, you know, mostly for the good and it's mostly about the uplift. And therefore, I'm not going to emphasize some of the more sensational uh, aspects of whatever their divorce decrees or whatever. A writer can do that. You know, the, the... The documentarian does that too, but his, it's more formalized when he says now by going in bed with Major League Baseball and pretty much, you know, writing away the chance to be negative. But I think it's a conscious choice, exactly what Stefan was saying. And I think that there is an analogy to any artist deciding on what kind of story you're going to tell. I think that's all right. I just kind of came away from this movie feeling like I wanted to watch a documentary about the agents. You know, the guy Juan Ignacio Hernandez Nodar, who is working with Cubas, um, is in the movie. He went to jail for 13 in Cuba years. for 13 years. He snuck into the country and tried to get El Duque out with false travel documents. And he's portrayed in the movie, perhaps accurately, as somebody who is treating the situation very cavalierly 
and thought he could get away with this kind of absurd crime. But he had, did serious time for it. He's no longer speaking to his former associate, Kubas. Which he talks about in the film, that when Kubas said, you can have 30%, and we had agreed on 50%, that was it. So that relationship between those guys and just the, you know, how Kubas discovered how to get these guys out, that, to me, just was something that I wanted to watch and learn more about. And I think the fact that it seemed like it was kind of omitted made it feel more interesting to me. A little Streisand effect action yeah. there. Um, well, I'd love to watch a, I'd love to watch a doc on them and the Buscones and even, you know, tie it into American agents. There's a real a real authoritative look at that whole underbelly. And this is all still happening. You know, Yasiel Puig got out of Cuba documented by Los Angeles magazine and you can make an amazing documentary about that. Jose Abreu, who's probably going to win Rookie of the Year for the Chicago White Sox, got out of Cuba on, in a harrowing kind of sea voyage as well. And so you can continue to tell these stories. And then Jorge Arangari Jr. wrote a piece for Vice about Cuban players who've gotten out in recent years who never get a major league contract. Um, people who are desperate, you know, the embargo is still going on. You still can't sign a contract with a major league team without escaping the country and guys who are desperate and then don't have the storybook dream ending like the Hernandez brothers did. So there's so many stories here. Um, This is just a small one, a happier one. I don't think they should have addressed all of those things that I just mentioned in this one film, but I came away from it thinking this is kind of a sanitized version. One Seymour, Different 30 for 30. Could have been better. All right. Fair enough. you give it a 24 out of 30 for 30? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it a 20, 21 out 21. of 30. 21 out of 30 for 30. All right. That's good. All right. Time for afterballs. One of the great players from my youth, kind of growing up, Cuban players, was Omar Linares. You would hear about him as kind of this mythical, shadowy figure who had hit like 400 in the Cuban League, and he never um, got the chance to play in the major leagues and ended up playing in Japan, right, Stefan? He played in Cuba for years. I think he won two gold medals and a silver medal at the Olympics. He was one of the greatest Cuban players of all time. Of course, it's hard to evaluate Cuban players because they're playing against other Cuban players. But in international competition, he also stood out. I mean, he was this mythic figure that major league scouts lamented not being able to pursue and get to play in in the big leagues. All right, Mike, what is your Linares? So in the past week, the National Toy Hall of Fame welcomed its new inductees, the Rubik's Cube, Little Green Army Men, and Bubbles. That's not a stripper. That's just actual Bubbles. Not the character uh, from other, The Wire. <laughs> other, no, that's right. Andre Royo is now in the Toy Hall of Fame. <laughs> other toys that were on the list include the, or included, but didn't make it, included the Hess Truck. Josh, you're, you didn't grow up in New York. You know what the hell the Hess Truck is? I had a Hess Truck. Yeah, you grew up in New York. Did, yeah. did you know what the hell the Hess truck is, Josh? I don't. That, that's why it's not in the hall, Toy Hall of Fame, exactly. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, American Girl Dolls, Fisher-Price Little People. These were all on the list. So as you can imagine, this just burned up the airwaves on Toy Talk Radio. This originally aired on The Gist. It's a Slate's Daily News Politics and Toy Program. But now we take you to, this was a discussion last week on The Toy. And we're 
back. 43 minutes after the hour, we are talking about this vote, this Hall of Fame vote, the National Toy Hall of Fame. Been talking about it all show. And let me tell you, folks, I haven't gotten to this yet. The idea that somehow pots and pans are a legitimate contender. Pots and pans. I mean, I understand the ball is in the hall. I understand the blanket is in the hall. You can't undo past miscarriages of justice. It was a different era. What we know now about why the blanket got in the hall. But pots and pans, that just baffles the mind. All right, let's go through some of these contenders. To me, Rubik's Cube, first ballot no-brainer. The cube is in the hall. Then you got Slip and Slide. I also think this gets in. Grand not all the writers were on the friendliest terms with Slip and Slide back in Slip and Slide's playing days. Still, I think Slip and Slide makes it an easy. But remember what the criteria are for the voters. One, icon status. Two, longevity. Three, discovery. The toy fosters learning, creativity, or discovery through play. And four, innovation. The toy profoundly changed play or toy design. And to me, this is why I do not think controversial here. I do not think My Little Pony makes the haul. To me, My Little Pony is a compiler. I am a harsh grader. I will say this. I'm a harsh grader. Andrew, can we get the stats on My Little Pony? Can we get the book on that so we could look up My Little Pony stats? Ugh, it's 2014. All of this is online, Mike. Can you tell me when did My Little Pony have her best years? I'll just go to wikipedia.com. The TV series ran from 1986 to 1987, and they discontinued the line in the U.S. in 1992, and then it exploded in popularity again in 2010. All right, thanks for that. I get it. I get it. Applejack, Flutterfly, Pinkie Pie, a murderer's row of ponies, but a couple thoughts here. There were a whole lot of years in there that My Little Pony did nothing, whether it was injury or contract status, whatever, and there was a lot of protection in the Hasbro lineup. To me, My Little Pony is a compiler. Did My Little Pony ever have an MVP season? Did My my Little Pony put together a Cabbage Patch-like season. No, I keep My Little Pony out. Remember, Discovery Innovation. Remember. Also, there is no character clause for the Hall of Fame. This is not why Gumby has been excluded. So that is another important point. As we go through this list of contenders, let's go to the phone. Chris from Covington. Chris, you're on the toy. Yeah, hey, Mike. I just wanted to call in and say that this year, Mr. Potato Head has got to get in the hall. Yeah, Mr. Potato Head is already in the hall, Chris. Yeah, well, I just think that he teaches you the fundamentals. You know, you only got a set number of holes, a set number of body I, parts to put in. There aren't in that the many hall. choices. It kind of limits your Chris, play, but I think it'll be a really constructive Chris, way. Chris, you're not listening to me. Mr. Potato Head is in the hall. He's already in the hall. Chris, back All right, to the agricultural time thanks in America, the call, classic Chris. time. He's in the hall, Chris. Thank you for the call. Folks... If they have a Toy Hall of Fame, you can't have a Toy Hall of Fame without a Mr. Potato Head being in the Hall of Fame. I mean, if you think they have a Toy Hall of Fame without a Mr. Potato Head, I'm sorry, you're lost. You're just lost. All right, let's go now to John from Methuen. John, what's up? Mike, uh, first time, long time. Uh, look, uh, Little Green Army Men. I think they gotta be. Uh, they got to be in there. All right, thanks for the call, John. Yeah, to me, Little Green Army Men, I mean... Do you even think of them as a toy without Toy Story, without the movie's Toy Story? They were just a thing that was there. They were just like the easiest shape for the Chinese to make. And I know the movie made them seem fun, but they didn't move. No innovation, no discovery, just not there. I'm against Little Green Army Men. All right, next call. Emmett from the Upper East Side. Emmett, you're on the air. Hi, Mike. What's my long time? Hi, go ahead. Don't cut me off, Mike, but... I like turtles. Yeah, okay, and thanks for the call, Emmett. So, all right, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles... Ready? Not a toy. 
Not a toy. A cartoon, a TV show, made the toy out of the TV show. That's the opposite. I don't even like My Little Pony, but My Little Pony is a toy. Now, you're going to tell me that the Star Wars figures were obviously a movie before they were a toy, but they're such a good toy. To me, the VORP, the value over replacement playthings of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is very low. You got Donatello, you got Michelangelo, you got Raphael, you got Leonardo. Let's put them up against the Erector set, right? Put them up against marbles. I mean, these are two Hall of Famers already. I mean, marbles, you can't say marbles in the same breath as you say Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. All right, let's say this. You're going over your friend's house and you want to play marbles and you hear he doesn't have marbles. Well, then your day is ruined. But if you want to play Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the next question is, all right, you got Star Wars figures? You got a 3CPO? I'm fine, all right? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, to me, they're just replacement level action figures. Okay, let's get one more phone call in here. Let's squeeze in uh, Doris from Weehawken. Hello, dear. Hello, go ahead. You're on the air. Yes, yeah, I'd like to bring up uh, Mrs. Potato Head. Oh, you didn't hear me. We have discussed this. Mr. Potato Head is in the Hall of no, Fame. I already no, said no, this no, with, uh, no, you're not call. hearing me. Mrs. Potato Head. Oh, Mrs. Potato Head. Interesting. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, if uh, if Raggedy Andy can get voted in five years after Raggedy Ann, uh, then Mrs. Potato Head should be able to. That's <laughs> the cardboard true. box happened. is in the Well, okay, okay, site. thank you. Thank. We got to cut you off there. You can't lo- use that language, dear. I will, t- I will tell you, folks, cardboard box is in the Hall of Fame. I, you know, they have that Young Timers Committee. They got a bunch of two-year-olds. They crawled in the box. They voted for it. This was before they revised the voting procedures. I get it. But Mr. Mrs. Potato, I haven't thought of this yet. No, I don't like it. To me, Mrs. Potato Head is just a Mr. Potato Head with a purse, maybe a different hat. It's not its own toy. It's as if there were Lincoln Logs and Mary Todd Lincoln Logs. What, we got to make a Hall of Fame for the pink Legos? You know what I'm saying? So rounding out the list, here are the other ones we haven't talked about. Paper Airplane, Operation, not this year. I don't think with Obamacare. It's a controversial choice. Uh, You know what I think is on the bubble this year? Bubbles. Yeah, Bubbles is on the ballot. I think Bubbles is a bubble candidate. Because what are you going to do if you vote Bubbles? Next, you got to vote in a water sprinkler, right? you got to vote in sunshine and a lawn. This is the problem with natural phenomenon. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk to last year's inductee, Rubber Duck. Rubber Duck is going to join us here, top of the hour, and uh, Jay Glazer Fox. Back after this. You should really stay tuned for that Jay Glazer segment. He really <laughs> really tells you some things about Rubber Duck that you... He brought it. He did, <laughs> that, you, that you never knew. He has Rubber Duck on speed dial, you have to understand. He has Potato Head just leaking him information left and right. <laughs> he trained Rubber Duck in MMA, so that's why they're <laughs> that close. All right, he Steph. put out Potato Head's eye. <laughs> All right, Stefan, what is your Linares? Well, in part one of our new series, Stefan Cleans Out the Basement, I introduced you to Chick Evans and his classic book, Golf for Boys and Girls. In part two, I'll be talking about another title unearthed from my childhood bookshelf, Rules of the Game, the complete illustrated encyclopedia of all sports in the world. It came out in 1974. The cover proclaims it the most spectacular sports book ever published. For young and old, amateur and professional, spectator and participant, it's the perfect gift book or guidebook. It's got your 1970s bold shaded fonts, a big Star Wars fade on the title page, the copious illustrations, 2,500 of them, are in the style of a Heimlich maneuver poster. You might be surprised or maybe not to learn that based on those illustrations, Josh, all athletes are white, except for those who participate in boxing or basketball and discus, there's a black discus thrower. Also, all martial arts athletes 
are Asian. While it might not be the most spectacular sports book ever published, it is comprehensive. You got more than 150 sports, orienteering, kendo, darts, snooker, Canadian five-pin bowling, high lie, ski bob racing, pigeon racing. There's a whole chapter on animal sports. And there's also speedball. Until dusting off rules of the game, I hadn't heard of speedball. According to the book, speedball combines the elements of several team sports, particularly soccer and basketball. The players may kick, throw, and catch the ball. There is no offside rule. Carrying the ball and physical contact are not allowed. The preferred ball for speedball is a soccer ball. When played outdoors, it's an 11 v. 11 game. Important note from the authors, players wear uniforms of jerseys and shorts. Football boots are worn. Dangerous equipment is prohibited. Speedball was invented in the 1920s by Elmer D. Mitchell, an early proponent of the idea that athletics should be an important part of education for all students. Mitchell played varsity baseball at Michigan. Branch Rickey was his coach. He went on to teach and coach in high school and college. He coached Michigan's first varsity basketball team, 6-12 and 12 his first year, 16-8 and eight his second and final season, turnaround specialist. It was his final year because Mitchell was an academic and administrator at heart. He founded a department of intramural sports at Michigan, believed to be the first of its kind at a university, and he led the construction of the Grand Brick Intramural Sports Building on campus, a place, quote, where a thousand students can enter daily to congregate and to mix their exercise with sociability, Mitchell wrote. The IM fields at Michigan are still named for him. Mitchell's efforts were a product of his times. After World War I, play and leisure were subjects of great educational and social interest. Schools were adding recreational requirements. In 1924, President Coolidge organized a national conference of outdoor recreation. Elmer Mitchell's 1934 book, The Theory of Play, traces the history of play around the world. Quote, the leisure time problem has so forced itself upon the attention of every stratum of our society that all educators and civic leaders are faced with responsibility, not only for meeting the demands of the immediate situation, but also for exercising foresight in social planning for the refinement of future recreational standards and for the improvement of individuals' recreational appreciations. Phew. Speedball was one of Mitchell's answers to the leisure time problem. It was designed to be safe and fun for boys and girls of all athletic or non-athletic abilities, but it seems to have been mostly aimed at girls, hence the rules on barring contact and carrying the ball. It was also lumped with soccer as good sports for girls. In 1936, Spalding published the official soccer and speedball guide with rules from the editorial committee of the women's section of the American Physical Education Association. I found a 1962 pamphlet, Soccer Speedball Guide, from the Division for Girls and Women's Sports of the American Association for Health, Physical Education and Recreation. And in 1976, it was expanded. The National Association for Girls and Women in Sport published its guide to soccer, speedball, and flag football. Speedball was definitely played at Michigan. It spread to other schools, especially high schools. There does not appear to be a National Speedball Association or any pro leagues, even in Europe. But three Georgia colleges... Kennesaw State University, Georgia Tech, and Georgia College have club speedball teams. Kennesaw won the spring league. Georgia Tech's been looking pretty good this fall, but these guys need to update their websites. We're missing the last three or four games. So get on it, Kennesaw and Georgia Tech. The thing I like about speedball is that in a lot of the ball sports, there are certain rules about what you can and can't do with the ball. The ball comes first. But in this sport, people come first. People come first. Do whatever you want to do with the ball. It is the, Screw the ball. It is the people's sport. You can score touchdowns. You can kick the equivalent of field goals. It is a sport for all, one and all. Josh, what's your Linares? Uh, we talked a, 
a little bit about obscure baseball, mythical, shadowy Cuban players. If you're interested in more mythical, more shadowy, and perhaps busting some of those myths, uh, you should read John Thorne's book, Baseball in the Garden of Eden, The Secret History of the Early Game. We've had John on the show. He's a great historian. He's, in fact, now the official historian of Major League Baseball. Um, But anyhow, one of the most fascinating things he notes in his book is that in the 1880s, there was, I quote, an absolute craze for novelty acts. Uh, Those included barnstorming teams of women, Chinese players, and black teams were in that era considered novelty acts by white uh, baseball audiences. Teams of fat men would play thin men in games billed as jumbos versus shadows. And there was a game in Philadelphia, he writes, in 1883, in which a team of one-armed men played a team of men that only had one leg. And so I looked for the contemporaneous accounts. Well, Stefan, it's the subject of my afterball. Excellent. <laughs> You're going to have to wait to the end. Um, so I looked, up conte- ahead. I looked up contemporaneous accounts of this game. And in fact, it did happen. It was written up in the major papers. The New York Times previewed the game with a story headlined, Cripples Playing Ball. Thorne uh, notes that press reports were not particularly kind or politically correct. And you will see that as I read this Actually, uh, for, the, for the era, that was politically correct. <laughs> <laughs> Cripples playing ball. Yeah, that was, that was definitely softened. Whoa, PC, everybody. <laughs> All right. The dayline is Philadelphia, April 19th, 1883. The baseball fever is running uncommonly high in the city and has at last attacked the cripples. <laughs> <laughs> Two teams have been made up entirely of maimed men. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that liberal New York Times. And has at last attacked the cripples. Uh, one is called the Snorky Baseball Club, and is composed entirely of one armed men. John German is captain and shortstop. His right arm is off above the wrist. He is an old railroad man and lost his arm in that service. He is now a gate and flagman for the Reading Railroad. A. Hansen is the pitcher. An accident in a rolling mill cost him his left arm from the elbow down. A.L. Barry is the catcher. His right hand was pinched off while coupling cars. He is said to be remarkably adept at catching and takes the balls right off the bat. Isaac T. Folkt plays second base. His left arm is entirely gone. Another victim to a railroad accident. And it goes on like this. Stephen can see it's a giant <laughs> block of text all describing industrial accidents suffered by players in this, na- in this game. So the team was called the Snorkies, named after the one-armed Civil War veteran in Augustine Daly's 1867 play, Under the Gaslight, a play that I'm sure all hang-up listeners are very familiar with. Um, and then goes on to describe the club of one-legged men known as the Hoppers. James <laughs> Dowdell is captain, plays second base. His right leg is off below the knee. All the Hoppers lost their legs while working on railroads. And all the members of both nines, excepting Faye, Connors, Cahan, and Bogan, are married men and have children. Both nines are practicing and playing ball continually. Seven of them were expert ball players before they became crippled, and they enter it now with renewed zest. They have re- arranged for a match game between the two nines to take place at Pastime Park, Wednesday, May 23rd. The players are all industrious and responsible men. The Reading Railroad officials are nearly all taking a great interest in the forthcoming match and will give the men a holiday for the game. How human. kind of How them. humane. All right. Did these guys keep working? Apparently. Apparently. Okay, here we go. Account of the game. Washington Post, May 24th, 1883. The Snorkies' easy victory. 
The Snorky and Hopper baseball clubs, composed respectively of one-armed and one-legged men, played a match game of ball today for the Cripple Championship. Four of the Snorky team had an arm off at the shoulder, one had a paralyzed arm, and each of the rest of the nine was minus a hand. The Hoppers were in worse trim. Their first baseman had an artificial leg. The center and right fielders chased balls on crutches, and the others of the nine traveled on peg legs. The two-legged, one-armed side had an easy victory over the two-armed, one-legged crowd. The score standing 31-11 to 11 at the end of the fifth inning when the game ended. So they weren't really hoppers. They had crutches. They had peg legs. Throw those prosthetics aside. No AIDS. This is 1883. This is modern times. Throw those, throw those AIDS aside. So you would think that, you know, this, this game, this was, this was a special occasion never to be duplicated. In fact, it was duplicated just a few months later in Washington due to the roaring success of the first one-legged versus one-armed game. They played at Athletic Park, a stadium that I didn't know existed. It's, uh, it was a ninth street between S&T, Northwest, not that far from, uh, from where I live in Northwest Washington. Um, a couple stories in the run-up to that game noted proceeds are to be devoted to the relief of the unfortunate striking telegraph operators, worthy cause. They will be equipped in regular baseball uniform and will present one of the most amusing exhibitions ever given in Washington. All right. How did that game go? The headline in the Washington Post, Outdoor Amusements, a baseball game with unique features. The man who invented baseball couldn't have recognized the game yesterday afternoon as played by the one-legged and one-armed men. Rules were made to suit the occasion, and the umpire furnished new ones when called for with a readiness of invention that did him great credit. There are rumors that his sympathies with the unipedal gentleman had something to do with the result. And although the left-handed scorer did his best to keep up the other side, the umpire had the last say. I don't really know. What does that mean? I don't really know what that means. But as you might have gathered, the one-legged men scored a uh, a victory this time. The game was thirty to twenty-nine. Here's box the score. here's the box score. It uh, went five innings. Uh, the one-legged team scored nine in the bottom of the fifth to win. Um, so you've got the usual box score stats, and then on the line score, it says one arm and one leg for the teams. And then below that, two base hits, McCarty and Rimsburg. Home run, Wilson struck out, one-armed, eight, one-legged, four. Double play, Wilson and Croissant. Time of game, two hours and 15 minutes. Umpire, Mr. Swank. So uh, a couple conclusions you can draw from, from these games. First of all, attendance? A lot of industrial accidents back in the 1880s. Second of all, you can't let a special occasion like this go unduplicated. Third, this was really fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Stefan is studying the box score carefully. The, the, the ultimate zone rating for these guys is going to be very, very low. <laughs> Not a lot of defense right. played. Um, we'd love your feedback when we talked about it today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Chris Laskowski. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Lucky Land. 
Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.